Colossians chapter 3. Let's hear God's word together. (coughs) If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Would you join with me in praying and asking that our God would help us to hear and receive his word, that it might bear fruit? Our Father, we look to you this morning and we come on the basis of who you are and your promise that you've made to us. We come to you on the basis of your word that's been revealed to us and the great hope that we have in what your word is. That it's not mere information, that it's not historical text alone, that it's not the opinions of man or it's just some holy book that's been preserved, but it is your word that's living and active. It's your revelation of yourself to us, and so we pray that you would help us to hear and receive it as it is. And Lord, we also confess that in and of ourselves, our hearts are often callous or even hardened, that our eyes are often dim or even blinded. So Lord, we need the ministry of your own spirit. Soften our hearts, open our eyes, help us to hear and receive your word in such a way that it would change us, conform us to the image of your Son, that it would stir up faith in your Son. And Lord, if that faith does not exist within us this morning, would you create it? Would you speak into our lives (coughs) to what is darkness, and would you speak light? Would you reveal your glory in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We have just read Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Perhaps familiar words to you, but I wonder as you heard them this morning, how you heard them. I wonder if you heard these verses to be spiritual, but not tremendously practical. I wonder as you heard them read, if you had the sense that they are important, but if you were honest, you're unclear as to how important they really are, as to what they really mean. I mean, phrases like seeking the things that are above. Phrases like setting your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. They sound very philosophical. They might even sound mystical to you. Or maybe they sound like a burden. How are busy moms, ER doctors, pipe fitters, CPAs, everybody working through their week supposed to respond to something like this? Set your minds on things above not on things of the earth. I think for many, there's a strong temptation to dismiss a portion of Scripture like this as kind of an optional. It's it's hyper-spiritual. It's the sort of idealism that has its head in the clouds, but it's detached from daily life. Who actually does this? And how would I ever attempt to do such a thing? Maybe as you read these verses, you think of the sort of monastic Christian who walls themselves off from around the world, seeking to separate themselves from the reality of responsibilities of life to seek those things which are above. Or maybe you think of the sort of bookish sort who's obsessed with ideas and concepts, but they honestly struggle just to connect to daily living. 
to read these verses in that way would be a mistake. Ironically, this passage is the gateway to understanding the most practical implications of your life. Just look at what lies ahead in the remainder of chapter 3. Notice the various subjects that Paul moves into springboarding from this very verse. Do you want to know how to relate to indwelling sin and the corruption that remains in your heart, Christian? Well, that's verses 5 through 10. Do you want to know how to relate to others in humility and kindness and meekness and truthfulness and forgiveness? Well, that's verses 11 through 15. Are you trying to figure out your role as a wife, as a husband, as a child, as a father, as a worker? Verses 16 through the first part of 4. Every imperative, meaning every command that Paul gives in these coming verses, are grounded in the announcement of what we have in Christ. While false teachers surrounding the church, Colossae, are promising tremendous spiritual maturity and growth and holiness, Paul says, honestly, what do we have if it's not in Christ? Whatever these teachers are peddling, it is incomparable to the riches that we have in Christ. Their teaching, he said, has the appearance of wisdom, but when you actually listen to it, church, when you actually break down what these false teachers are promising to you, it is incapable of actually delivering the promise. It is of no use in dealing with the indulgence of the flesh, as he says at the end of chapter 2. The question that's before us is this, do you want to change? Do you want to stand against temptation? Do you want the great assurance that you are loved by God and that you are welcomed by him? Do you want the sort of joyful endurance that pulls you along in the midst of trial, in the midst of affliction and loss? Then you must lay hold of the truths that are here in Colossians chapter 3. And what is that truth? That truth is that unless Christians are so heavenly minded, they will be of no earthly good. That's essentially what Paul says. It's only by setting our minds and seeking those things above that we will enjoy the Christian life and that we will live faithfully in this world. Now, one of the keys to this passage is noticing the changing of tense. Paul is very clear in these four verses that certain things have already happened. Past tense. That there's a glorious event that shall appear. Future. And that there is something that ought to be happening in our lives presently. Do you see that? In the changing of tenses and what Paul is unpacking here? And it's by that that we could then approach this passage in this way and say, look, every Christian has a past. Every Christian has a future, and these realities ought to shape our present. Let's consider this passage through those three transitions. Every Christian has a past. Now, to hear a friend tell you that, hey, so-and-so, they really have a past, usually that implies some sort of negative background. But in this instance, it is certainly good. Christian, you have a past, and... Paul mentions two massive landmarks in your past. 
You have died, and you have risen. He says in verse 3, the first part, you have died, past tense. Certainly the death of Christ is of primary, primary significance and importance when we consider the message of the Scripture. But not only did Christ die for his people, we also died with him. There's something very important to recognize in what the Scriptures teach. Romans 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Or as Paul says to the church in Corinth, and, uh, or excuse me, to Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. To say that we have died, to say that we have died to sin, to say that we have died with Christ is saying that we have died to the dominion of sin. That in our natural state, outside of Christ, we are in bondage. Our wills are in bondage to the dominion of sin, and sin is so much more than just doing the things you shouldn't, though it is that, or not doing the things you should, though it is that. It is ultimately your failure to live as a perfect image bearer of God. It is your lack of conformity to God's will, which is his law. And you are in bondage to that sin. You're in bondage, this incapable ability to please God as he designed. But having died with Christ, the bondage of sin is broken. The dominion of sin is removed. We are literally dead to the reign of that sin. It has no authority over us. It's dead to us because we are dead to it. And what the scriptures teach is that this death happened in the past. It's not something that might happen to you if you follow these steps or you are faithful here, that eventually you can get to this point to where you are dead to sin. Christian, this has happened to you. Whether you realize it or not, if you are in Christ, the bondage of sin is broken. And what this means is not only that you have died, but as it says in verse 1, Christian, you've also been raised. When Christ was raised, he was triumphant. Triumphant over death, triumphant over sin, triumphant over hell, and we rose with him. We are then raised to new life. We're new creatures. We have new abilities. We have new desires. We have new appetites. Again, going back to Romans 6, verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christian, you have been raised. 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ all shall be made alive. Christian, you have been made alive. That is a part of your past. I fear one of the tragic misunderstandings within the church is that salvation is a thing rather than a person. We mentioned this last week. Why I think this is a misunderstanding is that good-intentioned evangelists, pastors, 
conference speakers have often pressed hearers to come forward even to get saved. And while I understand and appreciate the concern and have no question as to the motive, I think we're doing a great disservice if we detach salvation from Christ. The sort of intentionality that says as if being saved or Christianity is just simply being handed a certificate of forgiveness as some kindergartner moves from one grade to the next. Here's your forgiveness. Or as if Christ did something and now it's doled out to you. Here you go, here's your forgiveness. Wouldn't anybody else like some forgiveness? The damage that that does is that it separates the reality of what we've been given from the one in whom it is experienced. When salvation is just simply an event or an experience, it removes it from the emphasis of Scripture. And what is that emphasis? That the believer is someone who is united to Christ. They are in Christ. They are hidden in Christ. They are with Christ. And it's this vital union that Paul is pressing upon us here is, tells us we are enabled to live this new life. It's not just information of you were this and now this. You are united to him in such a way that you have a vital union. Whether you want to think of vine and branches, or a tree planted by streams of living water, or members of a body connected to a head, whatever image you latch onto within Scripture, it is clear that it is a vital union. To be saved is to be united to Christ. That means that it's not something that we work up for. It's not something that we strive to enter into. It's not some secret power that enables us to climb a spiritual ladder and then say, I've arrived. I'm, I'm in this new level of Christianity. No, if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. You are dead and you've been raised. You have a past. If we are united to Christ, then we are united to him in all that he has done. Everything that Christ has accomplished, you are wed to that. We've died with him. We've been raised with him. Christian, hear me again. This is your past. Regardless of whatever sin that you're thinking of right now, whatever shame or guilt that maybe you've been carrying for decades, what this scripture announces is that if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. Christ has regarded our helpless estate. You are dead and you are alive. Every Christian has a past. But secondly, this passage also reminds us that every Christian has a future. Look down to verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, because we are hid with Christ in God, as he says in verse 3, we can be certain that we shall also be revealed with Christ. Do you see what he's doing there? Hidden and revealed. You're hid with Christ, and when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory, because we are united to him. 2 Thessalonians 1.10, And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed, because our testimony 
to you who believed. When he comes on that glorious day to be marveled at among all who have believed. The second coming of Christ will be a general meeting of all saints of all time in all places. And those whose life is now hid with Christ will then appear with Christ in that glory when he appears. Isaac Watts was a pastor, a theologian, who thought often of the world to come. He's actually written a very accessible book called The World to Come, if you want to meditate more on this theme. He says, however mean or lowly and contemptible our Lord Jesus Christ might appear heretofore on earth, yet there is a day coming when he shall make a glorious figure in the sight of men and angels. However little the saints may be esteemed in our day and look poor and despicable in an ungodly world, yet there is an hour approaching when they shall be glorious beyond all imagination, and Christ himself shall be in them. In that day shall the Lord, our glorified Savior, be the object of admiration and wonder, not only those among of the sons of men who believed in him, but before all the intellectual creation, upon all the account of his grace and manifested believers. Do you think often of this day? Saints in the past most certainly did, probably more than we do. There's probably a number of reasons for that. But do you think often of this day? When Christ returns on this glorious day, every eye will see him, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. As you think upon that day, Think about the persecuted saints who held fast. Those who refused to deny Christ. Those who endured pain and suffering. On earth, they died a shameful and miserable and despicable death to many who didn't even know that they died. But they died for Christ. And yet, on that day, those who were esteemed as nothing will appear with Christ in glory and they themselves will be seen as glorious. Think also on that day of the multitude, just the mass of saints that will be gathered. You may not like family reunions, but this one, I'm telling you, will be the best. This one. Can you imagine in your mind's eye the sheer mass of souls resurrected with Christ in glory? To be seen as he is. From the patriarchs to the prophets, the apostles, the early church fathers, reformers, faithful saints, missionaries, martyrs, moms and dads gathered together. He's appeared. We appear with him. Think also, though, of the great relief and rejoicing that will come on that day in knowing that the corruption of sin and the defilement of evil will be no more. When he appears, his glorious return, we will know by sight what we've held to by faith. As you've walked in temptation, and by faith you've said, no. 
as you've persevered in trial, as you've been maligned or slandered, as you have known evil unjustly against you, in that day, in that glorious day, we shall know by sight what we've held to by faith, that now the kingdom of righteousness shall reign eternally, and only righteousness shall dwell herein. That's why we stand and we sing with great boldness, when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed to him bring. Then anew this song will sing, Alleluia, what a savior. The person who sings that is confident that they have a future. And this is wonderful news. To be dead to sin, to be alive to God, to appear with him in glory, that is the best announcement that you could hear all day. But before we move on, I don't want you to be mistaken here. I don't want you to be mistaken into thinking that this is carte blanche, good news for everyone. This good news is reserved for certain people. It's good news, but it's not for everyone. All of this comes only to those who belong to Christ, only to those who are united to him. And union with Christ is not some subjective, mystical experience where you must go and do something or you must achieve something or you must endure something. All of this belongs to those who are united to Christ and only to those who are united to Christ. Then the question you should be asking right now is, how am I united to Christ? And the answer of Scripture is that it is by faith. It is by faith. This morning, Christ announces through his word that for all who are united to him, they're freed from the bondage of sin, that they are most certainly assured that the penalty of sin is removed, that the guilt of sin has been taken care of, and they shall dwell with him in newness forever. That is known by faith. It is known by hearing the promise and responding and saying, I believe that. I choose to believe that what is true of me, I'm a sinner, and what's true of God, that he's faithful to his promise, I'm banking on. That's how you're united to Christ. And that's how this promise becomes something for you. If you're unclear about that, or if this has sparked your interest, or maybe more questions, this is a wonderful lunchtime conversation to bring up with maybe the person who you're sitting next to, or the person whose house you're going to later today. You follow Christ. That means you're in Christ. What does that mean for me? Parents, this is a wonderful conversation to take up with your children as well, isn't it? There's wonderful promises given to us in the scriptures. How do we receive them? By faith. The validity of God's character. On the graciousness of his revelation. Every Christian has a past. Every Christian has a future. And lastly... This is to shape how we live in the present. Notice how the statements of fact become the motives for the commands. The pattern of this is true, therefore this must be true of you. That's the syllogism here. Look at verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, 
set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died, verse 3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The imperatives are sandwiched in between the indicatives, meaning the commands are wrapped around the promises or in between the promises. The emphasis of the commands are made by way of contrast. What is below, what is earthly, is compared to what is above, what is heavenly. And no doubt this letter is filled with heaven. Chapter 1, verse 5. Because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Chapter 1, verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You have a past, you have a future, and that past and that future is to shape how we live in the present. How, Paul, seek those things that are above. It's the first thing he says. In verse 1, seek the things that are above. Let me be clear here. Seeking the things that are above, it's not escapism. Do not think that to think of heaven, to long for Christ, to long for his return, is escapism. Not any more than a child longing for home or a husband longing for his wife. We seek the things that are above because our hope is laid up in heaven, because our reconciliation has affected even unto heaven, that our Lord Christ has the dwelling in heaven. And most plainly, what Paul says here, this is where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, to say that Christ is seated at the right hand of God is a reference to a portion of Scripture that's in the Old Testament that is the most quoted Old Testament portion in the New Testament. And when that happens, that means we pay attention. If there's one portion of Scripture that gets brought up again and again and again and again in the New Testament, that's God's way of telling us this is really important. It's Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1, where Yahweh tells Christ to sit at his right hand, ruling in righteousness over the nations. Psalm 110 is referred to more than any other Old Testament passage because it speaks to Christ and his exalted position as the redeemer and rescuer of God's people. The glorious reign here that we're speaking of is known as the session of Christ. In the same way when you hear court is in session, and the way that court begins to be in session is when the judge is seated. Now it begins. The one of authority is here. The one who is in charge to make ruling session is seated, and Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, primarily to remind ourselves that what he's accomplished and who he is. This is not mystical mumbo-jumbo where you just think of spiritual thoughts and hopefully some pixie dust falls on you and you have a better day. This is wonderfully practical. Think upon Christ. Okay, what about him? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. 
And what that reminds you of is that he's in a place of authority. And that he's also in a place of rest. That he's sat down. We're not seeking this in order to possess it because we're already united to him. We're seeking to make it ours. We're seeking to take what is true and to impress it down upon what happens tomorrow morning at Monday at 8 a.m. Wednesday at that meeting. Friday night with your in-laws. All the various events that fill our calendar. That we are taking the reality of Christ's rule and we are pressing it down upon where we live. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Be honest with yourself. How much would your anxious thoughts, your fear of the future, your worry over the unknown, your concern about health, finances, relationships, political corruption, how much would those things be quenched if right now the heavens were tore open and you saw the risen and majestic Christ seated on a throne? How much would all of that change in light of that reality? Christian, it's true. Seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That is Paul's aim here. Fix your gaze upon that reality and remind yourself of what that means. He is in the position of authority. We say with the psalmist, my God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. It's a position of rest and that he's offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins and he has sat down at the right hand of God as the author of Hebrews says. My atonement is accomplished. My forgiveness is secure. My reconciliation is complete. The Savior has taken a seat and said, it's finished. How often we need to seek these twin truths that God is sovereign And that Christ has offered himself for me, a sinner. The power of God and the pardon of God ought to fill your thoughts. Seek it in such a way that it becomes the shaping force of your daily reality. Lord Jesus, help me to see my role and my responsibility as a husband and a father in light of your exalted reign. Father, cause me to use this freedom of schedule that you've given to me in light of Christ's righteous rule. Lord, help my declining health, my rebellious daughter, my unrighteous boss to be seen under the righteous reign of Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Secondly, he says, set your mind. On things above. Now, this is an elaboration of the same point, but with a slightly different emphasis. In contrast to setting our minds upon the earthly regulations, the old covenant restrictions like the false teachers were requiring there in the end of chapter 2, the Christian, in contrast to that, sets his mind on things above. Now, when Paul speaks of the mind, don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not speaking about mere intellectual process or bare thinking, but thinking in order to engage the will. Perhaps the translation you memorized was set your affections upon things above. 
think there's something helpful in that. This word affections is something that has been used by Christians for hundreds of years to talk about not just our emotions, not just our mind, but the way that the mind affects what we want. Set your mind on things above. And for Paul, thinking, whenever he uses this term, it's always connected to the way that we live our lives. This is not detached intellectualism. This is a Christian whose mind is filled with the truth of Scripture to live in a certain way. It's not an exhortation to be so heavenly-minded of no earthly good, but so heavenly-minded for earthly good. That's exactly what we want. Meaning, a mind that is fixed on what is true, a mind that's fixed on what is the spiritual realities of who I am in Christ, so that it shapes who I am on earth. Fill your heart with Christ. Set your mind on the realities of who he is and what he's done. Where should you begin? For starters, just review what Paul's already said in the context of this letter. Are you looking for ways to help give you tangible handles to say, what do I, do I just picture Christ on a throne? No. What has he done? Who is he? Go back to Colossians. What have we been given? Chapter 1, verse 5. We have a hope that's laid up for us in heaven. Meditate upon that. Verse 12, we're qualified to share in the inheritance. Think upon that for a morning. Verse 13, we're delivered from darkness and transferred into the kingdom. We have redemption, verse 14, and the forgiveness of sin. Okay, well, who is Christ? Think upon that. Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the creator of all things. Verse 17, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, he's the head of the body. He's the church of the church. Verse 20, he's the great reconciler. He's the one who makes peace through the blood of his cross. Verse 22, he presents us blameless and above reproach before him. Set your minds on things above. Christian, set your mind on these things. Flood your mind and fill your heart with the truth of Scripture. What do you do when you're overtaken by sin? Set your mind on redemption. Set your mind on the promise of the forgiveness of sin. Set your mind on the fact that in Christ you are presented blameless and without fault before the Father right now. Not 24 hours from now after you beat yourself up for that sin that you've done, but by grace, through faith, you lay hold of what is true right now that's been accomplished. Set your mind on that reality. What do you do when trial, affliction, even the reality of death come for you. Set your mind on the fact that he is the firstborn from the dead, that he holds, he holds all things together, and that you have a hope laid up for you in heaven. These verses are not subjective mysticism or pietism wrapped in idealism. They are the hope and the foundation for every believer. The great need for the church, it's not new programs or strategies, it's new people. The sort of people who've been united to Christ by his death, burial, and resurrection, his session, and his glorious return. 
the sort of people who are then enabled to gladly love neighbor and serve others, endure suffering, rejoice in trial, and give generously because they are convinced of the one overarching truth that rules their life. My life is hid with Christ in God. And everything else that comes at me or that I walk through is dominated by that truth. If we are united to Christ, then we are united to him in all that he's done for us. If we are united to Christ, then we share in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his eventual return. All that Christ has accomplished, all that Christ has secured, all that he provides as our mediator, and all that he shall establish upon his glorious return is ours now by the very essence of our being united to him. It's not something you must achieve, something you must work harder for. It's something that Christ has accomplished and is yours to enjoy now by grace through faith. This is true. How might your life be transformed by laying hold of this truth? Well, for one, it should give you great confidence in the inevitability of your transformation. Has God begun a good work in you, Christian? Then he shall complete it. It's as good as done. When we're united to Christ, the whole of his earthly life is made available to us, not simply to compensate for your past, Like, here's a bunch of bad stuff you did, but put Jesus on the other side. It's going to work out in the end. It's not just simply his earthly life given for you to compensate your past, but to actually sanctify your present life so that our own past doesn't dominate our present life. Some of you need to be reminded of this because you continue to live with the dominion of sin that was your past. Your life is not dominated by the sins you've once committed or the sins that you've been saved out of. Your life is dominated by the fact that you are in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. In being united to him in his death and resurrection, I've undergone a massive transformation. And Christian, so have you. I no longer live for myself, but the one who gave himself for me. I've crucified the flesh with its evil desires, and I now engage in a spirit-led war against the flesh, living by faith in the Son of God. It's great confidence in our transformation. But this truth should also be great protection for you in temptation. Whether we realize it or not, being united to Christ is one of the strongest pieces of armor that we have as we engage with temptation. Joseph had some idea of the sense of this, though not as glorious as we have it. Do you remember when the advances continued to come against him with Potiphar's wife and his response? How could I do this great sin? Christian, how much more so do we have an even greater and all greater motivating thrust when we say, I'm united to the Lord Jesus. How could I? Not out of guilt or shame, but why would I? It's a protective guard in the midst of temptation to remind ourselves that we're not drugged down by all of the earthly realities that would say the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life will own you. But I am united to Christ, the same Christ who's seated at the right hand of the Father. 
not only I should not, but I do not have to. It's a protection in, in the midst of temptation. But this truth also, Christian, is a great comfort in the midst of sin, especially the moments right after sin. As those united to Christ, we grieve over our sin. We confess and repent of our sin. And we find the assurance of pardon in the great promise of the Father's good pleasure over us as we're in Christ. Christ was died, he was buried, and he rose on the third day. The penalty for sin, it's been satisfied in the death of Christ. The favor of God is upon my life, and it's as certain as the resurrection of Christ. It's not left to be doubted. This is great comfort in our sin. That we need not do penance. That right now, in Christ, you are forgiven. You are welcomed by the Father. And that moves us from the grief of our sin and what we've committed. And it moves us into the assurance of pardon. That grace motivates holiness. It provides the comfort and the assurance that we need. That we are well loved. That we are well cared for by our Heavenly Father. Church, by God's gracious work, we died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. So let's go on together seeking Christ where he is. Let's go on setting our minds upon him, filling our thoughts with Christ, so that the reality of who we are would shape how we live today. Father, we ask and we pray that you would cause these things to be true. Father, we ask and we pray that you would cause these things to bear tremendous fruit in our lives. Lord, help us to hear and receive by faith. And as we hear and receive, Lord, would you be faithful to your promise to cause it to bear much good fruit in our lives. For Christ's sake, amen.